Right, page 282, 1 Chronicles 1. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. The sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech and Tiris. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripheth and Togamah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Kittim and the Ronan. The sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama and Sabtika. The sons of Rama, Sheba and Dedan. Cush was the Sorry, Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on earth. Mizraim was the father of the Ludites, Anamites, Leobites, Naphtahites, Pathrazites, Cushlahites, from whom the Philistines came, and Capturites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Sarkites, Sinites, Avadites, Samarites, and Hamathites. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Aphaxid, Lud, and Aram. The son of Aram, Uz, Hul, Githa, and Meshek. Aphaxid was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Ebal. Two sons were born to Ebal. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Amadad, Seleph, Hazamavaveth, Sarah, Hadarim, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Hazalah, and Jobim. All these were sons of Joktan. Shem, Aphaxid, Shelah, Eba, Peleg, Ru, Serug, Nahor, Terah, and Abram, that is Abraham. The sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. These were their descendants. Nebeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kendah, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishbah, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, um, sorry, that's gone too far. Thank you. <laughs> right, yeah, I'm quite happy to stop there. Um, right, yeah, on page 288 now, we're going to 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Go straight to 1 Peter. Okay, that's one we're skipping, sorry. Page 857, page 857, 1 Peter, chapter 2, first starting at verse 4, page 857. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who don't, do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, 
and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, by your word and spirit that you breathe life into our lives. And we pray now that as we consider these uh, passages from 1 Chronicles and from 1 Peter that um, you would be uh, informing us and transforming us, that uh, we would be living with Jesus as our King. In his name, Amen. The Daily Mail newspaper uh, reported this week that archaeologists have uncovered the remains of an ancient city uh, within the, uh, the modern-day city of Jerusalem. They think that it might be the place uh, from where King David ruled in the 10th century BC. However, <clears throat> there is a debate uh, raging amongst historians and archaeologists about whether or not King David actually existed. Uh, listen to what the article said, and I quote, Some researchers believe the legendary figure, King David, is akin to King Arthur, an amalgam of myth and historical effect, the basis of which has been lost in the sands of time. What they're saying is this. <clears throat> they're saying that unless someone digs up a, um, a tablet or <clears throat> some other artefact, uh, which can be clearly dated from the 10th century BC and has the, the words King David uh, inscribed uh, into it, then we cannot know for sure if David really lived. If they found that kind of an artefact from the 10th century, then that would be uh, good evidence. If archaeology is the only way that we can be certain about history, that is. Because the, the biblical account, that's not the kind of evidence that, that they're after. Uh, to which we might say, well then, keep on digging. <laughs> and, and also, have a good read of the Bible books which, which tell of David and ask the question, what kind of literature is this? What does it read like? Uh, does it read like a, a collection of fanciful, made-up or, you know, um, wonderfully embellished um, mythical stories? 
Or does it seem that the author has done research, has done heavy-duty research, in order to tell us about actual events and actual people as miraculous as some of those events are? Today we head back into the Old Testament, having just finished um, the Sermon on the Mount series. And uh, for those of you who've been around here for a while, uh, you may recall, it's worth remembering, that over the past five years in church, on and off, we have uh, traced the storyline of the Bible, as we've uh, preached all the way through Genesis, all the way through Exodus, all the way through Joshua, and all the way through Judges. When we finished Judges in December last year, we saw that um, where the storyline was up to was that God's people were, um, they were settled, they were kind of settling themselves uh, into the promised land, uh, that, um, but yet they were unfaithful to God, that uh, they had this mixture of uh, belief in Yahweh and and an idolatry, uh, having taken on board the Canaanite gods and so on. So they were unfaithful, such that the final verse in Judges reads, In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. Remember that? Um, they had rejected God as their king. They had no human king like the nations around. And so it was every man for himself. They lived however they pleased. And that's where Judges finishes up. Now, normally, after the book of Judges, <clears throat> if you're just reading through the Bible chronologically, you come to 1 and 2 Kings, uh, which, um, well, you would read through 1 and 2 Kings as a follow-up from um, Judges, if you're looking at the um, historical uh, timeline. Uh, you get to 1 and 2 Samuel first, then you go to 1 and 2 Kings. But 1 and 2 Kings tell us what happened after God gave Israel a king and then the next 400 years of history after that. However, we're not going to be looking at 1 and 2 Samuel or 1 and 2 Kings. Instead, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be exploring the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles. Um, by the way, I should say that um, this is really one book. It's just that sometime back in history, it's such a long book that writing it on a scroll, it took up two scrolls. <laughs> so that's why we call it 1 and 2 Chronicles. Uh, we could call the two books just Chronicles. We could call it that. Also, we don't know who wrote Chronicles. And so we simply call him the Chronicler, which I think is a rather cool name, don't you? So I know it sounds like something out of the Matrix series of movies or whatever. It's a good name. However, as Christians, Chronicles, it seems to me, is not usually our favourite part of the Bible. In fact, we can be tempted just to skim read uh, through Chronicles or even skip Chronicles entirely. And I think that there's two reasons for that. Firstly, a lot of the material in Chronicles is also found in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. And so 
reading through Chronicles, we think to ourselves, well, you know, some of this stuff, I've read it before. It's, it's kind of like repeat material from what I've just read in books of Samuel and books of Kings. And so I might just read something else. Head over the New Testament for a change or something like that. And yet, there's actually a lot in Chronicles which is not in 2 Samuel or 1 and 2 Kings. There's new material in these books which we miss out on if we don't read it. The second reason that we can easily skip Chronicles is that there's parts of it that are pretty boring. Let's face it. I mean, what did you think of our first Bible reading today? You're glad that Peter didn't invite you to read the Scriptures this morning, right? Right? Well, I've got to tell you, folks, that was half of um, chapter 1 of 1 Chronicles, and that was just a sampler. The first entire nine chapters of 1 Chronicles are almost entirely exactly like that. Genealogies. Nine chapters of genealogies. So and so was the father of such and such, and he had sons and, and so on. By the way, it's a great place to look if you're wanting to find a unique biblical name for your baby. <clears throat> um, there are, in, one, in chapter 1, there are over 200 names to choose from. But nine chapters? I mean, what was the chronicler thinking? Why would the chronicler write a book with an introduction like that? And how is this even remotely helpful to us as Christians in the 21st century? Well, to understand, I think that it helps us to know um, a bit more about Chronicles. It helps us to know, for example, when Chronicles was written. Because these books are located, if you look at, look at it you know, from that angle, it's in the early part of the Bible, isn't it? It's in the early part of the Old Testament... And because of that, we can assume, we might assume, that this was written in the early part of Israel's history. But that is not so. That is not true. Can I get you to uh, go over to 1 Chronicles chapter 9? One bit of today's passage which is not actually a, a um, genealogy. And I'm going to read to you from verses 1 to 3. Has everyone got that? 1 Chronicles 9, 1 to 3. All Israel was listed in the genealogies recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. There you are, 1 and 2 kings. The people of Judah were taken captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. Now the first to resettle on their own property in their own towns were some Levites, priests, uh, were some Israelites, priests, Levites and temple servants. Those from Judah, from Benjamin and from Ephraim and Manasseh who lived in Jerusalem were, and then he launches into another long genealogy. But what does this tell us about when Chronicles was written? Well, it tells us that it was after God's people had returned 
into the promised land out of their captivity, out of their exile in Babylon. That's what it tells us. Uh, in fact, the genealogies show us that it was, was about six generations after the return from exile, which means that Chronicles was written uh, most likely sometime in the middle of the 4th century BC. That is a long time after the events of David and Solomon because David lived in the 10th century BC. Which, by the way, that's why if you were Jewish and you only had an Old Testament, um, you would find the books of Chronicles would be the very last books in your Bible. Right? Because that's when they were written. Now, this is not just an interesting or, you might think, boring um, history lesson. This is actually vital. This is vital for understanding Chronicles and understanding God's purpose uh, in history for his people. Because uh, after nine whole chapters of genealogies, from chapter 1 to chapter 9, in chapter 10, which Peter will be preaching on last week, I'll be taking some leave... Uh, the chronicler goes back six centuries from his perspective where he stands in history. He goes back six centuries in history and using material uh, chiefly from one and two kings and material from other sources, he teaches his readers, those who have returned from exile in Babylon, he teaches his readers Israel's history starting with King Saul and then King David and onwards until two great crises occurred in the history of God's people, two great crises which God had actually purposed, which God not only allowed to do, which God actually engineered in a sense in order to shatter his own people. Now, remember when we did Genesis, um, what were the three great promises that God made to Abraham? Do you remember that? Three great promises that God made to Abraham. What's the first one? A begins with P. A people. The second one begins with L. A land. The third one begins with B. A blessing. A people, a land, a blessing... That uh, Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, that they would possess all of the land of Canaan, that they would be blessed and that they would be a blessing to the whole world. That was the promise that God made to Abraham, and we've seen that working its way through, working its way out in history. So that by the time we get to two Chronicles chapter nine, it looks like its promises fulfilled. In 2 Chronicles chapter 9, at the time of Solomon, uh, we read from the chronicler that Abraham's descendants were as numerous as the stars uh, in the sky or the sand on the seashore, that they were well established in the land, that unlike in the days of David, that under Solomon that they had peace on all sides and that the borders had extended and 
that the rulers of other nations, um, specifically the Queen of Sheba is mentioned, they were blessed, that they were blessed by the wisdom of Solomon and that the rulers of the nations admired the splendour of Israel. It was the place to be. And the centrepiece, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the showpiece uh, was the magnificent temple of God in the city of Jerusalem being the tangible expression that God was dwelling with his people, that they were his, his people, that he was their God and that they uh, experienced the blessing of God. I mean, how good it was. How good. They were living as God's people in God's place, supposedly under God's rule, the golden days. And now imagine that all of that is taken away. I wonder if you might turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 5. And I'm going to lead to you, lead to you from, from verse 23. <clears throat> 1 Chronicles 5, verse 23. The people of the half-tribe of Manasseh were numerous. They settled in the land from Bashan to Baal Hermon, that is to Sunir, Mount Hermon. These were the heads of their families, Ephur, Ishi, Eliel, Azriel, Jeremiah, Hodavida and Jadiel. They were brave warriors, famous men and heads of their families, but, but, they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers and they prostituted themselves to the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So, the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Paul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, who took the Reubenites, the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh into exile. He took them to Halal, Habor, Hara and the river of Gozan where they are to this day. See, after King Solomon, things started to go downhill for Israel under Solomon's son Rehoboam and a divisive character by the name of Jeroboam, Israel split into two kingdoms, into a northern kingdom which became known as the kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom which was faithful to the Davidic kingship line and was based in Jerusalem which was called the kingdom of Judah from which of course we get the word Jew. But what's happened here? What, ha what we see here is a, a, a defeat at the hands of Tiglath-Pileser, the, the king of Assyria in the northern kingdom. And with this defeat and with some, some other uh, defeats, what has happened is that God has caused this brutal king, the king of Assyria, to defeat Abraham's descendants and to rip Abraham's descendants out of the promised land in the north. 
And then as we saw in chapter 9, verse 1, in 587 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah, with its capital Jerusalem and with its temple, were also destroyed, this time by the Babylonians. Its people were taken into exile in Babylon for 70 years. And so what's the picture here? I mean, they've gone from having this, you know, being as numerous as the stars in the sky and having this uh, wonderfully being settled in the land, being a blessing to the other nations, but now, what have they got? They got any land? It's no land. There is not much left of them being a people. And where is this promised blessing? It's gone. It's over. Now, as the chronicler writes, he does so for a small, weak remnant of Abraham's descendants who have been allowed by Cyrus, the king of of Persia, who had defeated Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, and he was now in control, that Cyrus, the king of Persia, had allowed for this small, weak, insignificant remnant of Abraham's descendants to return to Jerusalem, to the ruins of Jerusalem, and to start to rebuild. And by the time the chronicler writes, they have rebuilt, they have built another temple, but it was nothing flash. It, it was not anything compared to the temple of Solomon and they have no king and they live at the pleasure of the king of Persia a pagan they feel like nobodies absolute nobodies who do you think you are is a um, I find it's an interesting TV show you ever seen it on SBS it's probably, I think it's just a marketing tool for Ancestry.com, but anyway. Uh, but, the, you know, where they, they take a popular person, a you know, well-known celebrity or politician or someone whose people know about, and they help that person to trace their ancestry to explore where they've come from, who their ancestors were. And sometimes it's quite moving when they learn that they're just, they are just not entertainers, that they actually have, you know, a, a great 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 grandmother or a great 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 grandfather, someone who suffered terribly and overcame difficulties, or someone who has achieved something great and significant. That is, they come to the realization that they actually belong to a storyline. Now, the poor, depleted remnant of Israel needed to know their storyline, that their story is God's story. So how does the chronicler do that? Well, let's go back to the very beginning, shall we, to chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 3, three very short verses, I might add. You see it? Verse 1, Adam, Seth, Enosh, verse 2, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, verse 3, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, 
Noah. Well, you know how it goes, don't you? There's God and then there's Adam, the man, the first man. And then there is, there's nine generations listed here from, uh, to, to Noah through whom God generates a new humanity after the flood. That is, verses 1 to 3 are a summary of Genesis chapter 5. And then, um, from verse 4, following the line of, uh, it follows the line of, of, of Noah, and then if you go to uh, verse 17, it follows the line from Noah's son Shem, in verse 17, verse 28, uh, down to verse 28, and that is actually a summary of Genesis chapter 11 because it, it shows the direct family line from Noah to Abraham and to his son Isaac. Then if you were to flip over to chapter 2, verse 1, this begins the family line of Isaac's son Jacob. And you know that Jacob had his name changed, didn't he? He, he was Jacob. He, God changed his name to Israel, meaning that he struggles with God. And from, from Jacob, that is Israel, we then have the, his 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And then what follows from, in chapters 2 through to chapter 9, is a sophisticated family tree. By the way, it's not only about the sons of Jacob. Uh, we see early on here that it also follows the, um, uh, the sons of Esau, who become the Edomites and so on. It shows how the whole world um, family of nations uh, develops but, but the critical thing here is that um, chapters 2 through to 9 are this very complex meticulous family tree of many branches covering somewhere between 1200 and 1500 years of genealogical record-keeping. How about that? I mean, I'm, I'd struggle to trace my family tree back for three or four generations, wouldn't you? However, and there's a, a lot of detail that we could explore in respect to that, but the detail which the chronicler himself emphasises is what I just want to draw to your attention and that is that the chronicler emphasises two particular branches of Jacob's family tree. Firstly, uh, in chapters 2 through to 4, it is the descendants of Jacob's son Judah which are emphasised. Now, King David belonged to that tribe. King David belonged to the tribe of Judah. And so too were all of his descendants, all of David's descendants, who ruled the nation of Judah from Jerusalem. So all of the kings uh, are from this particular family line. 
in the southern kingdom. The um, The dynasty of David is in a sense a symbol of God's rule over Israel. You know who else belongs to that royal line? In Matthew chapter... The New Testament begins with a genealogy, doesn't it? And in Matthew chapter 1, it is Jesus. It shows how Jesus is part of the family line that starts with... You know, that involves David, the line of Judah. Secondly, in chapter 6, the chronicler emphasises the descendants of another one of Jacob's sons, and that is Levi, the tribe of priests, the mediators between God and his people. You know who else is a mediator? Well, Hebrews chapters 7 through to 10, it is, of course, Jesus. He's a different type of mediator in the sense that he's not actually from the tribe of Levi. Uh, He's more like <clears throat> um, uh, he's more like from more like Melchizedek, in that uh, he's actually one who uh, is mysterious in that sense, and he, he he lives forever. But it's Jesus. Now, throughout one and two Chronicles, this emphasis on kingship and on priesthood is clearly seen uh, in the material that the chronicler has chosen to include. Now, we might be tempted to think that uh, these nine chapters of genealogies are like dry bones which need some life breathed into them. But I want to argue that the opposite is the case and that it is God's depleted people the returnees from exile, that these are more like the dry bones, into whose lives these genealogies were the breath of life. Let me show you just an example of that, what I mean by it to illustrate it. If you were to go to 1 Chronicles chapter 3 um, and verse 24... Let me read that for you. You got it? The sons of Elioenai, colon, Hodaviah, Eliashib, Peliah, Akub, Yohanan, Deliah, and Anani, 70 in all. And you, you know, as <clears throat> we'd read that and go, well, okay, we'll skip over to the next verse. But if you were a returnee uh, living in trying to rebuild the ruins of of Jerusalem, uh, you would look at that and you'd be thinking, uh, if if you had a relative named Eleonii, you would be thrilled because you'd be thinking, hey, I've got royal blood. I am a direct descendant of King David. Who do you think you are? Well, these people who had returned from the Babylonian exile, they needed to know their identity, that they are actually a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. And that 
their story is far from over. In fact, it points to a future which is greater than what they could have ever possibly have imagined, greater than Solomon, which leads eventually to us, to you and me. The nation of Israel, after returning from the Babylonian exile, never regained its king or anything like its glory. But Solomon's glory and Solomon's temple were only ever a pointer to a future day. A day when God in all of his glory would dwell with his people in the person of his son. Who by his sacrifice on the cross and ascension to heaven would become our priest and our king forever. And call us to be his people. So who do you think you are? Um, one, of, one of the members of our congregation actually discovered that she has royal blood, that she is a direct descendant of Kaiser Wilhelm I of Germany. How about that, eh? Now I've got you wondering, haven't I? You may be sitting next to someone who has royal blood running through her veins. In fact, as I look out, someone here is. But you know what? I don't think that she looked, She feels royal every day. <laughs> I don't think that's, that's how she feels. And as Christians, we can feel very ordinary at times, can't we? We're a minority... We're different, we're depleted, we feel depleted, sometimes we think we're depleted, and we're sometimes persecuted. But with Christ as our priest and our king, we are the true Israel. In 1 Peter chapter 2, which Heather helpfully read for us, the, the Apostle Peter does for us what the chronicler did for the returnees. He reminds us of who we are, that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Now that may not be who we always were. You might be someone who's grown up in a Christian family and as far as you can recall, you've always trusted and loved the Lord Jesus Christ. That's fantastic. You may be someone who has been living your life in the darkness of uh, having uh, not having a relationship with God and you've heard the gospel and you've embraced Christ or have been embraced by Christ and now that is who you are. We are now a royal, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We do now belong to God because as Peter says, of the mercy which we've received in Christ. Now the historians and the archaeologists, they will keep on debating whether King David really existed. And even if they do find a stone tablet from the 10th century with his name boldly, there's probably still going to be a debate going on. And they really should check out the whole nine chapters of genealogies in uh, 1 Chronicles. 
I mean, who in their right mind would make up all of that detail just for the fun of it? You know, King Arthur and Knights of the Round Table kind of mythology. But we can do even better than that, can't we? Because by our lives and our words, we can show to people the truth of our identity and the reality of the king whom we serve, the great king, the king in the line of David, whose name is Jesus. Well, next week Peter's going <clears> to <throat> uh, explain to us from um, chapter 10 as we look at Saul and, and David. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we want to thank you um, for this incredible record of the family tree of your people. We thank you that you have worked uh, in and through uh, people throughout history and uh, particularly we think of the, uh, the kingship of David and the priesthood, uh, that which is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father God, as your chosen people, as a holy nation, as a kingdom of priests who represent you to the world around us, that uh, we would so live as with Jesus as our King, that we would in fact be a light to the nations. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.